Welcome back to the Diet Doctor Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Schur. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Kevin Hall. Now, Kevin has a PhD in physics from McGill University, and he is the senior investigator at the National Institutes of Diabetes and Digestive and Kidney Diseases at the NIH in Bethesda, Maryland. And he's pretty active on Twitter at Kevin H underscore PhD. Now, Kevin has um, a reputation and well-deserved as being sort of one of the more preeminent researchers currently mechanisms of weight gain and loss. He also seems to have found himself in the middle of what seems to be this fight between the energy balance model and the carbohydrate insulin model. And personally, I, I like to see where we have common ground between those. And I think he, has, he does a good job of describing how energy balance isn't calories in, calories out. It's not that all calories are the same, which is sometimes sort of a misconception of the energy balance model. So he talks about what he thinks are the most important aspects of the energy balance model for gaining and losing weight. Um, we talk about some things like uh, resting metabolic rate, um, which is basically how many calories your body burns at rest. We talk about physiologic adaptation, and we talk about how his research, um, what is its role sort of in the bigger scheme of weight gain and weight loss research, because they are short trials. They are very very well, very meticulously controlled trials. And does that apply to a clinician trying to help a patient or an individual trying to make a decision for themselves over the long run? So how it may or may not play into that larger picture. And I think he's very upfront about limitations of his studies and benefits of his studies um, and where it fits into that picture. So I think that's an interesting part of this discussion. Now, another aspect of obesity research, at least for me, is I'm not a big fan of saying, you know, a certain model or hypothesis is dead or something is is proven or unproven. Because again, I think all, all studies have limitations and strengths that make it difficult to make those drastic changes. So that's, that's something I try to get through throughout the course of this interview is how things sort of fit together, what are some common threads. And, and I think Kevin does a good job of, of discussing the common threads as well, which is sort of where his future research is going. So at the end, he talks about how his research is sort of changing over time and what the future holds for his research, which I actually think is really exciting and, and could really help a lot. In, in, sort of knocking down the barriers to uh, losing weight and maintaining weight loss in a healthy way. And interestingly, he brought up in his in this research or in this discussion that he hasn't had any research studies where the primary outcome was weight loss, that he's more interested in physiology and some of the other health aspects um, above and beyond weight loss, which I was surprised by, and but makes a lot of sense after, after hearing him talk. So I hope you enjoy this interview with Kevin Hall. Well, Kevin Hall, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure, Brett. Well, as as we were discussing in, in the intro or before we got on, you went to McGill University and you got your PhD in physics. And I noticed that on one of your tweets, you said you can't believe it was however many years ago that you were playing bass guitar and and studying for your PhD. <laughs> and somehow you got from there to being one of the sort of foremost obesity researchers now. So tell us how that, how the dots connected and how you got into obesity research. Yeah, I know. So it's a, you know, a series of really historical accidents that I ended up uh, studying the kinds of things that I'm studying now. But basically, um, you know, I, towards the end of my physics degree as an undergrad, while I was playing in that band that you mentioned, uh, <laughs> I was kind of coming to the realization that, you know, I was, I was pretty good at mathematics, but my original goal of being, you know, sort of a mathematical physicist or a theoretical physicist, that wasn't going to pan out for me. I wasn't quite that good. 
And so, um, so I started to look into other ways that I might be able to kind of use these sort of quantitative skills. And, and I was fortunate enough to get a job in a physiology lab at McMaster University, where I did my undergraduate degree. And that turned me on to physiology. And th there was, uh, in particular, electrophysiology. And, uh, and then I found this group at McGill University um, called the uh, Center for Nonlinear Dynamics in Physiology and Medicine. That's a mouthful. Yeah, so it's uh, basically this group of uh, mathematicians, chemists, physicists, all sort of applying these um, you know, mathematical methods from what I guess was hot at the time, chaos theory, uh, to different biological rhythms and that sort of thing. And so um, I was fortunate enough to get accepted into the PhD program there, still in the physics uh, department. So all my coursework was still physics, which was good since I hadn't taken a biology class since high school. And, um, and basically went to work there studying uh, cardiac arrhythmias and applying different sort of mathematical models to understand different arrhythmia mechanisms and things like that. So that was a lot of fun. Um, and then... I realized after my PhD, I didn't really want to do a traditional postdoc, and I didn't want to continue in that particular uh, branch of, of uh, sort of uh, mathematical physiology. And I was fortunate enough to get hired by uh, a startup biotech company in the San Francisco Bay Area uh, called Intelos. And um, they were uh, partnering with various pharmaceutical companies to develop computer simulation models of various different diseases. And uh, so when I arrived um, in, in, uh, in Menlo Park, California, they basically said, okay, you're in charge of our type 2 diabetes simulation uh, platform. And I'm like, oh, great. What's type 2 diabetes? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we hired all these great consultants and other physiologists to kind of join the company and, uh, and basically got the crash course over the next uh, several years on kind of nutrition, metabolism, endocrinology. And we built, um, you know, a, a mathematical model of, of both sort of the normal physiology as well as what goes wrong in type 2 diabetes at various different stages in the progression of the disease and worked with companies like Johnson & Johnson and Novo Nordisk. And, um, you know, it was, it was just a, a fabulous time. And, you know, I really sort of fell in love with this kind of area of, of uh, physiology. And, and so when I started my lab at the, at the NIH, you know, I was continuing to kind of think about progressing in the field of modeling type 2 diabetes, but that company threatened to sue me. <laughs> so oh, wow. I decided, um, okay, well, maybe I should make a switch to something else. And that's when I sort of focused on obesity. And, and again, just doing mathematical modeling at the time. And then halfway through um, my tenure track, um, you know, I was making some predictions about what might happen in some experiments uh, when you're switching macronutrients around and how the body might respond and adapt to those different diet changes. And I was, uh, it was suggested that I start actually trying to test our models with actual clinical research studies in humans. So that was the next phase. So how long have you been at the NIH now? Oh my gosh, it's got to be 17 years, something like that. It's, it's insane. Yeah, I don't even yeah. want to think about that. I didn't have as many gray hair when I gray hairs <laughs> when I started there. Yeah. <laughs> so if you were going to sum up the motivation for your research, uh, what would you say it is? What drives you now? I mean, to be honest, my main driver is just curiosity and and just trying to figure out how the system works and how it goes wrong in different scenarios and you know, yes, it's motivated by the fact that, you know, obesity and metabolic syndrome and type 2 diabetes are you know, extremely important problems for society. But, 
you know, at the end of the day, I'm a scientist who just kind of wants to find out how things work um, and, and almost equally important how they don't work. And so designing studies to try to advance our knowledge in that area and, and hopefully, you know, our studies and what we do kind of helps inform the overall science and, and gives us a better understanding. And hopefully someday someone like yourself, who's a clinician and actually sees patients and can implement some of the insights that we've gained from our studies in, in total to, to kind of help people. Yeah, I, li I like that about connecting the the research back to the the clinical scenario. And I think that's so important. And I think we need to realize that it's layered, right? It's not always one thing X equals Y, right? Just because you do one study means you have an answer to implement, but it's layered and you have to you have to sort of appreciate those layers. And obviously there's so much controversy and arguments about uh, obesity, what causes it and how to um, how to remedy it and how to help people lose weight in a healthy way. And one doesn't always equal the other. What causes it doesn't always mean that's the way to fix it. So, you know, you've, you've made comments before, like, um, different diets can result in markedly different internal signals that influence food intake and metabolism. That's something I think we can all agree on, right? That's a, yeah. a pretty good statement that we can all agree on. But yet, but yet again, there's this, there's this conflict about a lot of the specifics. So, why do we eat too many calories? What has your research shown um, you that leads to sort of a, a, a summary of why we eat too many calories and why we have the obesity epidemic? Yeah, so uh, it's certainly not just my research, right? I mean, I think that this is the, the the point of, you know, this new paper that we wrote was we are trying to kind of correct some of the misconceptions that people have had, both the lay folks as well as even in the research community about you know, what is kind of the consensus sort of standard model that we have right now about, you know, what drives, what has driven both, you know, the increase in prevalence of obesity among different societies, as well as, you know, what explains why some people were more susceptible to whatever changes happened in our environment uh, to cause obesity. And so, you know, what we were trying to do in this most recent paper in AJCN was, you know, try to put to bed a lot of the myths that are out there about, not about an absence of willpower. It's not about an, an inability to count calories. Um, it's, you know, what we believe is it's probably not about, you know, some sort of hungry fat cells that are, you know, sucking in too many calories. It's probably not about carbs overall or fat overall. Um, it's probably something much more complicated. And what do we understand about the biology of weight regulation and food intake control? Because we, you know, there is some debate even within, you know, the obesity community about, you know, the relative impact of physical activity, for example, versus food intake uh, or the, the built environment um, versus the food environment. Most of the folks that signed on to our, our paper point the finger more towards the food environment, although we certainly don't discount the potential role for the built environment. But when we focus on the food environment, then the question is what aspects of the food environment have changed because they have to have changed in order to explain the increasing prevalence. And how does that biologically get translated into a change in basically energy balance? I mean, all the models that we have have to, you know, at the end of the day result in an increase in calories over calories consumed over calories expended. The question is, what's the direction of causality? What are the key culprits in determining that? And our understanding currently is that, you know, the brain is playing a key role in this. It's, it's sensing the internal signals 
uh, from our hormones, from our nervous system, uh, from signals in our GI tract, uh, from, uh, from peripheral tissues and sensing their energy status. Uh, but it's also being influenced strongly by the food environment. And we know this from some human studies, but really elegant um, mouse studies uh, at the cutting edge of neuroscience, which is identifying how changes in the food environment and the foods that mice are exposed to alter specific circuits in the hypothalamus and uh, in parts of the basal ganglia and how they feed back on each other and how they you know, promote intake of certain kinds of diets and devalue other kinds of diets. It's really exciting cutting edge neuroscience that we don't fully understand and don't have a complete picture of. But all the arrows seem to be pointed in that direction, that the brain is playing this key role. Uh, it's responding to peripheral signals, um, but the food environment and, and the sensory aspects of the foods that we're eating um, are playing a critical role in determining the control of food intake and where we're ending up in terms of which uh, what sort of body weight and body fatness are we defending. Yeah, and that, that's... I think it's so interesting to, to realize okay, the environment is a critical part, of course, and but how the environment changed to sort of be for our detriment is not going to be easy to undo. No so <laughs> if that's <laughs> right, we, that's another thing we can unfortunately all agree on now. But so that means sort of the way out of this mess has to be something else, has to be some other way out of this mess other than just relying on the environment to change for our benefit. And that's where a lot of the the physiology of how macronutrients affect your body, how um, different ways of reducing calories affect your body, can hopefully lead us to a sustainable solution. Now, um, you know, you've also said eat less, move more is ineffective advice, right? And that's I think great to hear you say because the, the um, understanding for some people of the energy balance model is that all it is is energy in, energy out, all calories are the same, but it's the misunderstanding, just like I would say a misunderstanding of carbohydrate insulin is that carbohydrates are all that matters, right? I think those are those two are both sort of misunderstanding. So tell us a little bit more about how energy in, energy out is more than just all calories are the same, doesn't matter what you eat, and how that plays into our changing food environment. Sure. So it's, it's funny because when I, when I did make that switch to obesity, one of my first things that I was doing was trying to debunk this, this idea that, you know, a small change in your calorie intake, some easy change that people would say, you know, just cut calories by a hundred calories a day and you'll lose, you know, whatever, however many pounds over the course of the year. And you'll basically disappear after 20 years, right? So they're not accounting for any adaptations that occur in the number of calories that you burn or the number of calories uh, that you want to eat by increasing appetite because of this sort of feedback circuit that's controlling food intake and regulating body weight. And so, yeah, so the first part of my career at the NIH was just kind of basically going through a lot of the quantitative data that we have about how the body responds to changes in calorie intake when they're enforced. Um, how does that impact uh, mostly metabolism at the beginning because measuring people's appetite in their ad libitum food intake is a, is a real challenge. And uh, we can talk about that later. But um, really trying to quantify these various different aspects and what adaptations happen, how do they play out over time, how do they, they determine the amount of fat versus lean tissue that's being lost as people lose weight or regain weight or, or, or gain weight. Um, and so, yeah, so my first sort of whole series of papers that we wrote uh, at, at the NIH when I first joined was really trying to debunk these common ideas 
And um, because it is, it's just not that simple. And the body adapts and um, both on the appetite side, as well as on the energy expenditure side. And quantifying that was, you know, part of the challenge that we were faced with. And that's, that's what we were looking at. But at the same time, it's, you know, there's also this really remarkable and rich history of, um, you know, basically macronutrient swapping experiments where people would, you know, keep the number of calories that people were eating the same, but swap out carbs and fat. And, you know, the physiology between, between um, that manipulation of diet and what happens inside the body in order to try to adapt, which fuels are being burned, you know, how do hormone levels change? What are the different organs doing? How are the fluxes through, you know, between muscle and liver and, and adipose? And, um, and how is that sensed by the brain? It's, it's amazing. Uh, and it's incredible physiology. And it, it's, um, it's one of the things that we were trying to quantify in some of our mathematical models and ask the question, is it really true that a calorie is a calorie no matter what? Um, and the answer was pretty clearly no. Uh, certainly when it came to outcomes like, you know, what's happening to the internal hormonal milieu or, or metabolic milieu of the body, that it's changes standing on its head to try to adapt to the fuel sources that you're delivering. Um, almost like a flex fuel vehicle that you could just kind of throw in some diesel one day or ethanol the next day or, uh, you know, over the short term, the, the vehicle still runs pretty well on any of these arbitrary fuel mixtures. And there's good evolutionary reasons for an omnivorous creature like a human to be able to do that. Um, I think that, you know, the real question is, is a calorie a calorie depending on the outcome of interest, right? And what do you mean when you say a calorie a cal is a calorie? Is it is it a calorie is a calorie in terms of when you control the number of calories that people eat um, and you keep co protein constant? Because we've known, you know, since the 19th century that protein has, you know, uh, the thermic effect of protein is greater than carbs and fat. So, you know, the null is not no difference in calorie expended. It's it's more than we thought. And so, um, so those are the kinds of questions that we were really interested in exploring. And as I was sort of getting my research program going, um, you know, it was becoming more and more popular for low carb diets. You know, so it's sort of the you know, beginning of, I think I started my lab in 2003 or 2004, you know, the, you know, the new Adkins was kind of getting going and, um, it was, you know, just fascinating to see the switch from what used to be a very low fat sort of mindset to now a low carb mindset. And I was just fascinated to see, you know, uh, how people were, you know, supporting these different sort of, I would say kind of mechanistic stories about how the body works that didn't seem to match up with what, I had understood from the physiology I had read and the models that I was creating. And, and that kind of led us to designing certain experiments using our models to, to sort of test these ideas. Yeah. And that, that brings up a whole, a whole nother layer of, of designing experiments to test these things are challenging. I mean, we have to be honest, they're challenging. And you do a fantastic job of controlling as many variables as possible and making sure there's only one specific change because people are living in a metabolic ward and they're only eating the food you give them. They can't go and get food elsewhere. Their physical activity is being monitored and tracked and you can see that it's equivalent and everything is controlled. But practically speaking, you know, how long can you do a study like that? You know, two weeks seems to be sort of like the norm. Um, and that can tell you so much about what happens in that two weeks. But then the question becomes, does this translate to two months, two years, 
two decades, you know, that's where the clinicians start sort of saying, okay, well, how, how much does this apply for the long run? And that's where then we have to rely on different types of science. So whether it's the, um, the less controlled trials or even the non-randomized trials or the nutritional epidemiology studies and try and bring them all together. And I think that's where it can get really confusing because it's really easy to pull, you know, different studies and point to what it shows. And, and that makes it hard to sort of make sense of everything. So I can self-admit I'm babbling at the moment, but <laughs> I guess my point is that um, how do you see the the two-week study fitting into sort of the bigger picture of how a clinician sitting across from a patient has to decide to help them on their weight loss journey or how an individual can decide, you know, where to go next? Yeah. One of the things I'm really try to be extremely clear about, uh, especially when communicating with the public and communicating with, um, you know, helping their, our team write a press release for a paper if there's some press interest, is, you know, what the limitations of our studies are and that they're not meant to be translated directly to the clinician sitting with their patient saying, hey, this study showed that, you know, cutting fat led to 300 grams more fat loss over two weeks compared. No, I mean, we, and it's kind of challenging because sometimes the headline of a study um, as it's reported is not even close to the way that we've written a press release, right? So yeah. it's extremely challenging because we try to say, you know, here was the purpose of the study. The purpose was a very narrow question that was intended to bet, make, you know, some increment in science, testing a certain hypothesis, testing a certain model of how things should work. What were the, we thought were the logical consequences of a way of, of thinking about this system. And we tested that. Um, often, you know, sometimes for the first time in, uh, in, in this very controlled way and report those results. What that means for, you know, the effectiveness of one diet versus another in the real world um, under the care of a clinician and a dietitian and team of individuals, um, I don't think that there's very much relevance at all. Um, it, I think that our studies, like I said, you know, what, what's my goal? My goal is, yes, eventually the, the sum total of our studies hope to actually improve our understanding to help with uh, with the care of patients and help people lead healthier lifestyles, but I'm you know I'm selfish. I want to know the answer to specific questions, and so we design what we think are the best studies to answer the specific questions that we pose. Right. Okay, and that makes sense. Like you've mentioned, the brain is kind of the most important, potentially the most important organ or factor when it comes to regulating weight and regulating appetite. And there are so many different inputs that come into the brain, like like you mentioned in the beginning, and hormones being one of those. So I guess the question is, you know, how do those change over time? Because it's a dynamic, a dynamic um situation. And you know, this whole concept of adaptation has come up so many times um, for low carb diets, uh, or it could be any diet, but it seems to come up most commonly with low carb diets and how that changes over time. With the old joke being, if you, you didn't get the results you wanted, it means there wasn't enough time for adaptation. <laughs> but and in in so so in some of your studies, you've measured so many different things, like the the respiratory quotient and you know the ketones, whether they're going up or whether they're stable, and to really adjust for adaptation. But yet, in specifically now, I'm thinking about the um, plant based versus the the low carb meat based diet, which showed those who are eating the plant based diet ate fewer calories than the lower carb diet, which was sort of a surprise of what the low carb community thought. 
but yet from week one to week two on the low carb diet, the calories were still going down, which suggests there's still some sort of like process happening. And I guess that that's what I find interesting is like the, what comes next, the question of what comes next. And so again, being careful about how we interpret the studies now, press release versus Twitter reaction versus what the study actually says are usually three different things. So I guess for a specific question that I'm curious what you think about when you see um, variables still changing, like the caloric intake on the low carb diet continuing to go down from week one to week two and not reaching a steady state. Does that make you say, hmm, I wonder what, what comes next? Of course, of course it does. Um, and so that's, it's no accident that the next study that we're going to do is a longer version of that study in a more natural environment where we still have the same level of control over people's food environments. So yes, of course that's, that's the case. I guess that what we can do, however, is we can only go with the data that we have. Yeah. And I think that one of the problems is, especially like as I talked about when we were starting to debunk some of these myths associated with calories in, calories out, that's all that matters and there's no adaptation, the timescale of well, how long do you have to do a study to know that there's no further changes when it comes to obesity and adiposity changes, um, those studies are many, many years. Okay, so So we will never get those definitive answers in a controlled feeding study. There's just no way around it. That's all bets are off the table. So the answer is, you know, the, I think the question is what can these different types of studies do to inform our knowledge? Um, we don't expect that, you know, these differences in ad libitum intake, for example, are going to persist over very, very long periods of time because we would anticipate that that feedback circuit as people lose weight, their appetite is going to go up. And therefore, those things will converge eventually. The question is, does that lead to a substantial difference in body weight when they do converge? Does it lead to um, a, you know, prolonged effects on, on metabolism and prolonged effects on you know, the, the basically your endocrine system that are beneficial or detrimental? Um, we have to then start to think about, as you said, this confusing aspect of trying to synthesize different kinds of studies, put them together. Um, but it, yeah, I think that it's it's funny because I think that your your joke is uh, all too acute for us, which is you know whatever we find that doesn't go along with uh, a, you know a particular person's you know bias. Well, the the joke is well, you just didn't do the study long enough, and I can always imagine something changing in a longer study. And of course, the answer is. We don't know. Absolutely. That's certainly a possibility. Um, and we're certainly open to that. Well, good. I'm glad you're I'm glad to hear you're doing a longer study. And I know longer studies are the longer it is, the more challenging it is to control the food environment. Uh, and, you know, one of, I guess you could say someone on the other <clears throat> side, but still from a science basis is, is David Ludwig. And he's done some uh, 10 plus week studies where the food's all been provided by a, a third party that they mm -hmm. contracted with, which I thought was pretty great. I mean, I think that really sets the stage for how you can try and do these and they're expensive. That's part of the big problem, right? Well, it's not just expensive, right? Because even in those studies, which are free living now, right? So the, I mean, one of the things that's kind of in the data, which is not normally talked about is that, um, you know, and this is true of not just David's study, but all of the controlled feeding studies where you provide all the food and you have an objective measure of energy expenditure um, and weight and body stores, uh, body fat stores, is that um, and they inev invariably show that people eat many, many hundreds of calories of off-study food. 
And so that's the that's the question, right? So yes, it's more realistic, but you don't know what the heck they're eating, and you know it's there, right? Because you can objectively measure. Oh, they're burning this many calories. Their energy stores are you know either slowly changing in one direction or another, and it's a long enough period of time so that the precision of those estimates are pretty good. And then you can calculate, oh gosh, 400 extra calories were consumed that are not part of the study. And th- so th- that's what we want to avoid, right? So right. you know, our, our solution, and, and, and to, to um, Dr. Ludwig's credit, he came up with a very similar solution. Unfortunately, his study was closed early due to COVID, but he uh, and our future study will basically take folks, put them up in a kind of a, a, a sort of a center where they can't really have access to outside study food. We provide them with all the food still and control their food environment very carefully, um, but they don't have access to outside study food. And so then you can have a more, a longer duration study closer to free living, but again, they can't quote unquote cheat. Um, And so, so I think that that's part of the path forward. Um, But yeah, I think, you know, like, like you said, our studies are, have typically been short highly controlled. We know where all the calories go and how much carbs and fat and everything else people actually ate. Um, but yeah, it's pretty artificial and it can only be used to answer certain narrow set of questions. And then there's the free living studies where you provide all the food, but you know, they're not eating just the food that's on the study. And then there's the, the basically what I call diet advice trials, which are like, well, we're going to advise you and support you to con- to you know go on one diet versus another diet, but we don't really have any great objective way of defining whether or not you stuck to it or who was most adherent versus least adherent. So again, different studies, different strengths, different weaknesses. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought up uh, David Ludwig's study, the way he controlled for it, uh, unfortunately shut down to COVID. But I was joking with him that it sounds wonderful. I want to be part of that study. It was like in some beautiful lake house in the woods, yeah, yeah, you know, with exactly. no, nothing near you for miles. So hopefully yours is equally as enticing. Maybe I'll sign up. I want to, I want to live there for a couple of weeks and have all, <laughs> not have to cook or clean. And have oh, all this the one's two months, buy. Brett. You're going to have to come for two months for this one. <laughs> okay. That might be a bit much. We'll see. Yeah. And it, it is so interesting. Like you mentioned, then the dietary advice trials, which are really kind of what the clinician is closest to what the con- clinician is, is, is working with. Um, cause then it's, you know, adherence, adherence is so important because people are emotional and people eat when they're bored and when they're tired and when they're stressed and when they have cravings. And, and those are the things that, that, you know, shorter studies can't come up with. And like you're saying, you wouldn't, you're not trying to. So, uh, it's, it, it is interesting to sort of combine the two studies and say, okay, this shows us some of the short-term physiologies, this shows us the longer-term adherence. Now, how do we combine the two? And then we have to factor in all the body's adaptive processes. So one of the big adaptive processes is this metabolic adaptation or the um, basically the reduction of the resting metabolic rate or basal metabolic rate as you lose weight. And, you know, you've made a lot of news with the, the Biggest Loser study, which now came out, you know, years ago um, and was sort of interpreted as when you lose a lot of weight by cutting calories and all this exercise, you ruin or wreck your metabolism because then even years later when they regain their weight, their metabolic rate is still lower than what you would expect it to be when they've regained their weight. But now you've come out with sort of, a, I guess, a revision of, of what you've learned in the interim or sort of you know a, a new way of seeing that. So tell us sort of your updated 
approach or thought process of the metabolic rate changes with weight loss? Yeah, sure. Um, so you're right that when, and something that we kind of expected going into the study was that when people try to cut their calories as they would, if you're being, you know, given the enticement of getting a huge prize money for the person who stays on the show long enough and is able to lose the most weight. Yeah. Most people can cut their calories pretty, pretty, pretty well for, you know, I think it was $250,000 or something like that. Um, but when that happens, and this is again based on old physiology, we know that uh, metabolic rate decreases. I think that the original novel question was, if you do enough exercise, can you prevent the fall in metabolic rate? And the answer to that was no. So not too surprising, but that was kind of what we found initially. Um, what was maybe more surprising was that uh, the, you know, while the, the show focused on this intense physical activity that these folks were doing all of these hours in the gym and they were doing ridiculous amounts of physical activity. Um, one of the things that we found that was interesting was that while they were in this crazy environment, differences in physical activity didn't predict who was losing the most weight. Um, so they're all doing a lot. Some people are doing insane amounts. Some people are doing lesser amounts. Um, and but what made the difference was how many calories they'd cut from their diet. That was the primary predictor of who was losing weight on the show. And then the other thing was, therefore, that the folks who had the greatest metabolic slowing on the actual weight loss um, period uh, were the ones who were most successful at losing weight because it was a response to the cutting of the calories, right? So it's kind of like a, a spring. If you're not cutting the calories, you're not pulling on the spring. And, you know, there's a tension in the spring that's kind of resisting your moving. And you can think of the, the ball as being like your amount of weight loss. So the more you pull, the more weight loss you have, but that's greater tension in the spring. So that's kind of how we thought about metabolic adaptation. And then one of the things that um, was then thought of as well, maybe then the tension in the spring at the end is going to predict who's going to come back, right? Once they go home and once they kind of go back to their day-to-day -day life, um, those who had the greatest tension in the spring or the greatest metabolic adaptation, did they regain the most weight? The answer was no. No relationship whatsoever, which again, pretty surprising. Um, and and, and yet there was quite a bit of weight regain, right? So they regained about two-thirds of their lost weight, but I think that it was probably unfortunately portrayed as some sort of failure on the part of these these folks, because when you think about it, this was a six-year intervention in some sense. Um, and over six years, the average weight loss was 13%. So not bad, right? I mean, that's right. pretty good. Um, Especially when evidence shows if you lose 5% of your weight, then you're you're likely to see metabolic benefits and especially at 10% even more. So 13% right. overall is still pretty good. So if they would have lost 13% and kept it off, it would have been a success, but it was because they lost so much and then gained back that exactly. it was a failure. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Whereas, you know, who cares what happened in the meantime? Well, I, you know, who knows what could have deleterious or advantageous effects there might've been from that early, you know, profound weight loss, um, which I don't even remember what it was, but it was like 40% weight loss or something crazy. Um, so, so yeah, so these folks came back and so we thought, look, here's what's going to happen, right? That, that tension in the spring, they're, they're, they're coming back. The tension's got to be lower, right? They're, they're going to regain some of the weight. Let's bring them back and figure out what, 
show that, you know, they haven't permanently, quote unquote, destroyed their metabolisms because that was the that was the sort of party line of the anti, you know, anti dieting uh, brigade at the time, which, you know, again, I'm not a big believer in diets necessarily for weight loss per se, but um, is an open question. Did they have persistently reduced metabolic rates? And so when we brought these folks back, uh, you know, I had every intention of thinking that their resting metabolic rates would have kind of rebounded sort of more towards normal. And we were shocked that, no, it was persistent. They had this persistent reduction in metabolism. But again, it wasn't, you know, the people who kept the most weight off were the ones who had the greatest persistent metabolic reduction. So again, it, it might have just been that they had kept the tension on the spring the longest. Um, and so, uh, and, and, and we're able to keep that, that off. And so th that was the, the question then remained, well, what was it about their, their, what was, what was the thing that was pulling that was causing that tension on the spring? And so this is where it comes to more now more to our reevaluation. Because remember that the biggest predictor of that during the weight loss program was how many calories they'd cut. That now flips on its head, um, whereas physical activity didn't have any effect. Now it flips on its head. It's the people who had the greatest persistent increases in physical activity were both the most successful in the long term and had the greatest tension on the spring, had the greatest metabolic adaptation. So something happens over the long period of time. Again, this, this gets, again, at your questions about long-term adaptations and how fascinating and interesting and complex they can be. Um, because the, you know, the question is, how is it that physical activity is exerting this persistent long-term effect on slowing of metabolic rate? And um, and this kind of reminded me of some of the work that uh, my friend Herman Ponser had done uh, with the Hadza. And I don't know if he's been on your show or not, but you should have him on at some point. Yeah, I'd definitely like to get him on. Yeah. So so he was doing his uh, studies in Tanzania at the same time I was out in Malibu. I'll, I'll take my job better than <laughs> <laughs> but um, But yeah, so he was doing those studies then. And, and you know, he came up with this really profound insight that, you know, there was no relationship between the amount of physical activity that these hunter-gatherer tribe, um, tribesmen were doing and their total energy expenditure, total number of calories they were burning once you adjusted for how their body size, their fat mass and their fat-free mass. Because obviously, greater fat mass and greater fat-free mass, you tend to burn more calories. And so he came up with this idea of, well, maybe there's this constrained energy expenditure model, whereas if you're burning more calories in physical activity, you've got to take that away from some, some other piece of what he calls your energy budget, right? So your resting metabolic rate is one part of your energy budget, and that's what we were focused on with the Biggest Loser folks, although we were also calculating their total energy expenditure with um, doubly labeled water. And so... The new paper that that I wrote basically is kind of casting the biggest loser in the light of could this be, you know, one of the first sort of longitudinal examples of where this constrained energy expenditure idea, this this uh, metabolic adaptation interacting with physical activity um, could be taking place because, yeah, these folks still on average were quite physically active. Um, six years later. I mean, that, that's the one thing that was 
really profound about The Biggest Loser, despite the fact that it was a complete train wreck of a fat shaming show. Um, it, uh, it, it, I was blown away by how, how much exercise these folks could do. And now that's, it's their selection bias there, right? I mean, they're, they're choosing people who will be able to survive the rigors of this, of this program. But at the same time, you know, the idea that people with obesity could actually engage in vigorous exercise, as long as they kind of clear certain, you know, uh, medical concerns is I think, I think really positive because, you know, I think you had Glenn Gaser on the other day talking about how, we should decouple the idea of, of exercise from weight. Exercise has completely independent benefits. And I think Herman will tell you the same thing, right? Maybe exercise as a, as a means of losing weight is probably not the best way to think about it. It's probably a better way to think about fitness and health and, and who the heck cares how much your body fat goes down. If you're, if you're enjoying your exercise and you can incorporate it into your day-to-day -day life, you should probably be encouraged to do so even if you're not losing an ounce. Yeah, I mean, that, that last point is a really interesting point because there are studies where you look at overweight and obese populations, those who do better from a disease standpoint or survival standpoint, it does tend to correlate with either fat mass versus muscle mass or cardiorespiratory fitness. Like Depending on the study, either one of those can correlate, which suggests that there is this protective factor of cardiorespiratory fitness and physical activity above and beyond any weight loss, which certainly makes sense. Yeah, but I think the interesting correlate of that is, you know, what comes first, because it seems yeah. like it, it seems like the, the data, uh, the, you know, epidemiological data that have looked at people and followed them up with, you know, objective measures of physical activity like accelerometers, it seems like, you know, it's not that low levels of physical activity predict who's going to become overweight or have obesity. It's it's that as you as you gain weight, your physical activity goes down. And it's not too surprising to think of how that why that might be the case, right? It's hard. It's just harder to move around when you're when you're carrying that much weight. I mean, I put a you know a thirty pound backpack on my back. I, I'm not going to walk as fast as I did with it off, right? So it's not it's not a big mystery. But yeah, so it's 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 again more complicated than it seems in terms of causality. Sure. Yeah. As is the problem with a lot, most epidemiological studies, it's hard to separate causality versus correlation for sure. Now to, to get back to the biggest loser study for a minute though. Now this is an extreme example and sometimes it can be really helpful to look at extreme examples because that's where you're going to see the biggest difference rather than looking for, you know, much less extremes where you're looking for just a small change. But I guess a question has to be, when you're doing three hours of exercise and cutting your caloric intake, you know, by 40%, do the findings then, are those going to apply to the average person trying to lose you know, 10 pounds, 20 pounds, 30 pounds, trying to do 30 minutes or 45 minutes of exercise with the same, do you, do you think, and I know this is probably at this point your hypothesis, but with the same metabolic adaptation apply to the much more uh, benign <laughs> type of intervention of lower weight loss, lower interventions, more sort of real world type of scenario. Yeah. I mean, I think again, this spring analogy is, a, is important, right? That's how much you pull on the spring determines its tension, yeah. right? So, so yeah, you do a crazy thing like the biggest loser intervention, you're pulling like crazy on the spring and you have this huge tension that you can easily measure. It doesn't mean that it goes away when you just pull a little bit. Right. Um, and so, I think time and time again, we've seen this. And again, this is why it's important to put any given study in the context of what we know, even if the other studies aren't quite as well controlled, right? So 
you do these studies where you take um, individuals who um, have lost a lot of weight. We don't have any baseline measurements on them, but we know that they've lost some weight. There's documentation of that. And we measure their metabolic rate and compare them to a group of people who are matched but have never lost weight and are at that same level. There are some studies that show really, really tiny effects on metabolic rate. So others don't show any effect at all. Um, it's probably in the noise because it's such a small effect size. When you're only pulling on the spring a little bit, it's not, and again, they're not losing biggest loser amounts of weight. They're losing, you know, they might lose 15, 20, 30, 40 pounds, but, um, but whether or not that kind of bears over the, over the long term, I think is a, is a really good question. The other thing that you can do is you can compare it to people who do lose a lot of weight, like um, after Ruan Y gastric bypass surgery, right? So we did a, a short study, or uh, sorry, a small study where we took, we matched a group of bariatric surgery patients uh, from Vanderbilt who had the same age, sex, height, and weight at baseline as, the, as, as several of the biggest loser contestants and asked the question, did they um, did they observe long-term differences in resting metabolic rate and have this tension on the spring still? And the answer was at six months they did, but not at a year. Um, and again, kind of in this new interpretation, they're not becoming hugely physically active, right? And so that initial reduction is what you'd expect based on the calorie restriction that happens spontaneously with uh, bariatric surgery, which is, again, another fascinating area to, to, to think about. But then after they sort of restabilize at their lower and yet much reduced weight and still a pretty substantial intervention, their metabolic rate is normal for what you would expect um, them at that new weight to be. And um, But I guess the one question would be, if this constrained energy expenditure model is correct, if you add it you know, a substantial amount of physical activity on top of bariatric surgery, the prediction would be that there would be a sustained reduction in metabolic rate. That study, as far as I know, hasn't been done before. So, you know, one of the concerns about weight regain and inability to maintain weight loss is, is what happens to the metabolic rate. And so we need to protect the metabolic rate to prevent that weight gain. Do you think that theory has now been sort of turned upside down or, or proved incorrect? I, I think it's certainly less important than we used to think it was. Um, so again, the presumption was that if you lose weight and you have this great amount of metabolic slowing, that's going to predispose you to regain the, the lost weight. And what we found in The Biggest Loser and, and other folks like Katya Martins and, and, um, and, and colleagues at uh, University of Alabama, Birmingham have shown that there really doesn't seem to be that correlation. There, there's no correlation between the amount of metabolic slowing that occurs at the end of a weight loss intervention and who regains the most weight. So, um, so I think you know, the evidence points to, again, this idea that the metabolic adaptation is sort of following the behavior change and whatever you can do to kind of sustain that behavior change, you're probably going to end up both being better off in terms of the weight loss as well as that metabolic adaptation is is going to be still have that tension on the spring. It, it would be better if it didn't occur, right? Yeah. You would have you would have lost more weight, but it's not predictive. Okay. All right. Well, so you made a you made a comment that you're not a big fan of diets for weight loss. Um, so let me ask you, what are you a well, fan of for for weight loss? Yeah. So I, I guess that therein lies the question about you know, whether or not you should, uh, when I say I'm not a big fan of diets for weight loss, I mean, I'm not a big fan of only judging a diet by whether or not it produces 
weight loss, right? So there's so many other aspects in the same way that I'm not a big fan of exercise for weight loss, right? That's what I meant. Um, So yes, people could improve their diets for all sorts of reasons. Um, Weight loss shouldn't necessarily be the one that's at the primary outcome of, of interest, right? So I think there's all sorts of reasons why people could change their diets in various different ways that would be potentially vast improvements over what they're currently doing. Um, But whether they lose weight or not might not be uh, the best way to judge whether or not the diet is quote unquote working for them. Now it might be, if that's, that might be the case for some people, but I think that we've, in the same way we've tied exercise um, and uh, to, to weight loss, I think we've also tied improvements in diet to weight loss, where it's certainly a good thing if it happens, but I don't necessarily think we should be judging you know, a diet change based solely on whether or not it loses more weight than another. So some people would find that surprising coming from a obesity researcher whose research focuses on weight loss. And that that's interesting. I mean, I happen to agree with you. I think changes in blood pressure and blood sugar and insulin levels and how you feel and and the the metabolic health parameters are so much more important and weight loss is like a fringe benefit. But when you're focusing your research on on weight loss, people might find that surprising. I've never had a study where the primary outcome was weight loss. Right? Really? I didn't never. know that. Okay. <laughs> never. I'm That's more interested in the physiology of what happens when people change their diets. And we do measure weight because it's so darn easy to measure. And we measure body yeah. composition because we have the ability to do so. But we've always been interested in the metabolic changes, the physiological changes. Um, and we are interested in what regulates people's appetite, of course. Um, but, uh, but yeah, we've never primarily been interested in weight loss. It just shows I'm as guilty as anybody of putting people into buckets, you know, and I, I apologize. I had you in the weight loss bucket, but I, no but as you said, <laughs> that, that makes a lot of sense. One of the things you mentioned was just improving the quality of your diet. And I like how you said that it wasn't like starting a diet, changing your diet, it was improving the quality of your diet. And so you had another popular uh, research study looking at ultra processed foods, showing that when you matched, um, matched macros and, and you the only thing you changed was the amount of processing that in the ultra processed food group, they ate up to 500 calories per day more. Um, so I guess, you know, ultra processed foods has become the new bad guy and maybe the one bad guy we could all agree upon, except that it's hard to define what that means, right? There's the Nova definition. And what, when you think of that, what is the, what is the definition people can walk away from with ultra processed foods that I should avoid that's going to improve the quality of my diet. Yeah, so it's it's tricky and there's so much debate about this and you know that study was done because I originally looked at the definition of ultra processed foods from the group that proposed the Nova classification and I was extremely skeptical like how is it that you're saying that nutrients don't matter, right? It's called nutrition for a reason, right? <laughs> you're telling me, you know, that sugar doesn't matter, that, you know, saturated fat doesn't matter, that, um, you know, all of these things that we often think about as being, you know, deleterious nutrients to avoid, things like fiber and, and whatnot, things to kind of promote. Um, you're saying that doesn't matter. It's really just about the extent and purpose of processing. So it's a really weird definition. I still think it's a weird definition. And it doesn't doesn't instill confidence in me that we understand 
how these relationships have taken place in terms of behavior and the associations that people see with ultra processed foods and various different health outcomes. Um, so I was extremely skeptical about this idea. And, um, and in fact, but in fact, you know, it was part of, you know, this longstanding idea of, you know, the energy balance model. It's not just about carbs and fat. It's not just about sugar. It's not just about, um, you know, other aspects of the food. It's something else that's changed about the food environment. One of the things that's changed is this rise in the proportion of calories in our food supply that are derived from these ultra processed foods. And the way that people kind of think about them is it's really the prepackaged stuff that um, that is ready to eat, ready to heat. Uh, the stuff that's primarily in the center of your supermarket, if you if you go to the supermarket, although there's plenty of rice and beans and non-ultra processed foods in the center of your supermarket too. Um, but it's it's you know the things that uh, we we can't identify the whole food components like they're usually using you know cheap corn or soy um, as the as the primary sort of calorie um, calorific ingredients for these foods. They're really cheap to make. There's a lot of added, quote unquote, added value that the food companies do to kind of produce these foods. And they it looks like we have this abundant variety of things to choose from. But, you know, the calories are basically just from a few staple crops that can be grown quite efficiently. Um, and so so, you know, this was one area where I thought, look, if there's parts of the energy balance model that we can try to test and see whether or not it holds up. I'm thinking that ultra processed foods are going to be something that we can eliminate as a potential thing. I think it's really about the nutrients. And so you're right. We designed the study where we said, look, we're going to match for the fat. We're going to match for the sugar, the sodium, the fiber. And we're going to see, is there anything to this? Because if the energy balance model is correct, and this is an important component about what drives excess intake, then if you have two diets that are matched for nutrients, um, but vary in ultra processed foods, then there shouldn't be much difference in ad libitum energy intake if it's, about the, if it's about the nutrients of concern. Whereas if it's something else about these foods um, and their rise in, in prevalence in our food supply, then maybe there should be a difference. And I kind of, I was betting on the former. I thought that we would be able to, I know people in this community probably uh, know me for saying I falsify certain things. <laughs> I thought we were going to falsify the ultra processed food angle to the energy balance model by showing that there was no difference. It was really just about the, about the, uh, about the, um, the nutrients in the foods that we were giving people. And so, um, but at the same time, the other thing that I noticed was that, you know, and I'd been invited, I still haven't been invited to, to a low carb conference, but I get, keep getting invited to these whole fat, whole food plant-based uh, low fat conferences. And everybody there is like, um, you know, recommending all these non-starchy vegetables. Well, Diet Doctor recommends lots of non-starchy vegetables. And and if you look at the, the meal plans, there's not a lot of ultra processed foods in there either. So this is, again, an area of commonality. And so, um, so maybe maybe doing a study like this might kind of give us some insights about how diets that are either very low fat and high carb, like whole food plant-based, and even the folks who eliminate all oils and even avocados, which is, you know, highly questionable. Um, 
if 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 we can kind of agree on ultra processed foods, that would be great. So again, I like to design studies no, so that no matter what the outcome is, it's going to be interesting. I thought that if there's no effect on energy intake, that's kind of a story because we can say ultra processed foods don't really drive excess calorie consumption. If there is an effect, and yeah, as you mentioned, there was a huge effect, um, we could say that, gosh, there's something interesting beyond the sugar uh, the salt, the fat, the glycemic load that is driving a huge difference in energy intake. And in our hands, actually, these folks who didn't know what the purpose of the study was, they didn't know what their weights were, and they were wearing loose-fitting scrubs, something you can kind of do in an inpatient environment, um, they spontaneously gained weight and gained body fat um, on the ultra-processed diet and spontaneously lost weight and lost body fat on the unprocessed diet. So it's pretty interesting. And of course, we don't know if that's going to continue for weeks, months, and years or where people will end up stabilizing as they're kind of, you know, these other feedback systems kick in. But, you know, if you're going to look for an effect and it, a big one occurs, you know, you probably shouldn't ignore it, right? So, so it could potentially be important. And, and so, yeah, so that was kind of the story behind that study. Yeah, and that, that's another really interesting one about what the science shows and then looking at the practical implications because, of course, like you said, ultra-processed ultra processed foods are everywhere. So it's coming up with a lifestyle, an approach to nutrition that keeps you off of those and saying just avoid them, just say no, doesn't work, right? We know that, that it's not a lack of education. Yeah. It's, the, it's the desire for it. It's the inability to resist it. And so it's coming up with a way of eating that – that fills you up, hits your satiety center so that you're you're full enough, you're not hungry, you don't have the cravings. So in, in thinking about what you know from nutritional research, what are the main factors in a diet that you think hit that, that hit the satiety centers, that hit the satiety per calorie to keep people off of you know the desire to, to have those ultra-processed foods? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I wish I had a definitive answer for you. Um, I know that it seems like reducing the energy density and having a higher fiber content is potentially important. Um, and it seems like, you know, again, one of the questions, key questions is, well, what was the mechanism then? If it wasn't the salt, the sugar and the fat and the glycemic load and other factors that drove these big differences in the ultra process, what is it? So again, now we are designing and we starting up a new study to try to look at what we think are the top few uh, selections of things. And one of them is non-beverage energy density. We want to normalize those between the diets. We want to normalize um, as much as possible the number of hyperpalatable foods that are kind of being presented to people. So even though they didn't report any difference in the pleasantness of the meals, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's not other sort of rewarding factors associated with these uh, nutrient combinations that are kind of below our conscious awareness. So we want to kind of try to normalize for that. And so, um, so again, it, advice, in my view, kind of follows, you know, a mechanism that has been kind of tested pretty rigorously and, and you know, has shown some results in a wide variety of different kinds of studies would be ideal, right? So um, even if we come up with, oh, it looks like the energy density effect explains all of the ultra-processed food story. So that's the only thing you have to worry about. Well, no, I mean, again, you've got to think about the environment is that the reason these foods are so successful is they're so darn convenient. They're cheap. They're shelf stable. Uh, they they are tasty, um, and and they have all of these positive properties. And unless you kind of replace 
that convenience and that um, and the expense with something that is likely to be better for you um, and doesn't require the skill to learn how to prepare all these meals and the equipment and all of the other stuff. Um, yeah, we're, it's, it's a very difficult thing. So the way that we've sort of kind of ended on it now is that, you know, if you have the motivation, the skill and the wherewithal to eliminate ultra processed foods from your diet as much as possible, go for it. But, you know, that's a very different sort of question than, oh, should we tax these things or should right. we, you know, this is, this, that's, that's a whole other set of questions that's well above my pay grade here at the NIH. And, um, it's it's always an interesting it, question. Yeah. Is the science sound enough to, to institute a tax? Because, you know, once it's proposed, then all the mega corporations are going to be lobbying the, the government that it's, it's science isn't settled. And uh, right. so that's where that bar is. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. But I think, again, our, my job is to do the best science possible to try to figure out these these mechanisms and eliminate other mechanisms as they kind of come up and, and uh, are postulated as being you know, the most important drivers of the effects that we see. Yeah. And, and you mentioned energy density as, as a big part of it. But is, if, is that the only factor? Well, no, because then everybody's walking around eating salads and is, is that gets people hungry too. And there's a, the protein side of things as well. So it seems like there's a, a combination of protein, fiber, energy density, nutrition density, like all those coming together. Uh, have you done any studies looking at protein or have you planned to? Yeah. So we will have a preprint. I don't know when it'll come out, but we've basically gone back and done a secondary analysis of, even though the overall diets for both our ad libitum feeding trials were matched pretty closely for protein, the individual meals varied quite a lot, right? So we would match over the course of the day. They were presented with the same number of calories, same amount of sugar, same amount of fiber, same amount of protein. Um, but within each meal, there was quite a bit of variance. And so one of the questions that we're interested in answering is, what were the primary or the kind of rank of determinants of attributes of meals that cause people to eat more calories? Um, so things that we're thinking about are energy density, proportion of hyperpalatable foods, the rate at which people eat the foods, um, the percentage of calories as protein that were presented, uh, those kinds of factors, and try to come up with the relative rankings of how these, um, these different uh, factors in the meals that we provided to people, how do they predict how much people consume? And of course, each person gets three of these kinds of meals a day for a month. And, um, and so we've got quite a bit of data to look at. Now, it's not, it, the, the, the advantage is we know exactly how much they ate. We know exactly the rate that they ate it, and we have all this. But, of course, it's still only 40 people, and it's still, you know, only over a month uh, for each study. But hopefully this sort of secondary exploratory analysis will give us some clues about what the most important factors were so that we can help design new studies to really test, you know, prospectively, are these really uh, drivers of excess calorie intake or not? Good. Well, sounds like you have a lot of irons in the fire, so to speak, with a lot of future studies coming up. So I, I appreciate you taking the time, but I, I'd love to hear um, what you think the future holds and what we can expect to hear from you in the near future. Well, yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, again, our sort of research has shifted over time, right, from debunking these very simple ideas about about calories in, calories in, calories out, 
focusing initially on sort of metabolism and how fuels are being selected in the body and how does that have downstream consequences on energy expenditure and, and body composition. More recently, you know, it's this new landscape of trying to figure out what factors in our food environment, how do they influence our sort of calorie choices and, and how many calories we consume. It's kind of fitting within that sort of energy balance model from our from our new paper. And part of that is, you know, glycemic load and part of it is sugar content, part of it is energy density, part of it's you know, fiber and protein, as you say, um, really trying to kind of teased out what are the rank order of factors that are playing the biggest role? Because, you know, it's a cop out to say it's everything. Well, come on, there's got to be some things that are more important than others. We think that, you know, some things are more important. We think that glycemic load probably isn't in the very top of the list, but certainly can play a role. Um, and our goal over the next few years is to kind of really come up with that rank order and then see if that translates, um, hopefully, uh, to to kind of more free living environments and, and helping people, um, and whether or not it's really personalized. Is it really an individual difference? Um, how can people engineer their food environment at least locally in their house <laughs> in some way to make it easier to to adhere to certain diets that might be uh, specific to them? And that's that's kind of where the future goes for us, I think. Wow. That sounds great. Well, I look forward to it. And that's a whole nother topic we didn't even talk about, the inner per the the variability from person to person and the personalization. So it's a whole nother topic. But we'll save that for another day. But thank you so much for taking yeah. the time to join me today. And I, I look forward to more research from you coming coming soon, I hope. Thanks, Brett. Appreciate it.